Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes is Toro Imois to talk about how he wrote, recorded, and produced his latest album, Mahal. Toro Imois is the ever-evolving music project of American singer-songwriter, producer, and multi-instrumentalist, Chaz Bear. Exposed to a vast range of musical influences in his early years, thanks to his Filipino and African-American heritage, throughout high school he brought his musical experimentation to many different groups, including the indie rock bands The Heist and The Accomplice. At the same time, Chaz set to work on a musical venture of his own, for which in 2001, he adopted the name Toro Imois. While also pursuing other creative paths, including a degree in graphic design, in 2010, he released his debut album, Causes of This, on Car Park Records. Relying heavily on samples, the album was praised for its experimental approach to production and earned acclaim from press and high-profile musicians alike. The following year, the release of his second album, Underneath the Pine, saw a 180-degree shift away from sampling to entirely live instrumentation. This set a trend for Toro projects, with each subsequent album venturing into a varying range of styles and genres, all the while remaining, clearly, Toro productions. Alongside having a hand in almost all creative aspects that come with being an artist, Chaz has released a further seven studio albums, five EPs and four mixtapes under the Toro banner, while also working on house and ambient music projects under the name Les Sins and Plum. His career has also seen him remix and collaborate with artists including Disclosure, Tyler the Creator, Haim and Flume, with whom he earned a Grammy nomination for their track The Difference. Toro's latest album, Mahal, released in April 2022 on Dead Oceans, continues to shift the idea of what his sound can be, heading off on deep groove excursions with unvarnished instrumental expression, resulting in his most eclectic record to date. Today, I'm at home in Morden, South London, and Chaz joins me from his studio in Berkeley, California. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is Postman. Mr. Postman Did I get mail? Did I get a letter? Did I get a postcard? It is Postman by Toro Imwa, taken from the new album Mahal, and I'm very pleased to say that Toro Imwa himself, Mr. Chaz Bear, Mr. Chaz Bundick, is connected to me online. Hello, Chaz, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for connecting with us. So where are you now? I'm at my studio in Berkeley, and I'm just getting my day started. Yeah, and is this where you create all the stuff? So if we think about the new record Mahal, was it all recorded here? Partially. For the most part, it was recorded back at my other studio that's more of a warehouse space. I recently just brought my studio to a new location just to sort of separate it from the visual art world. So this is, um, yeah, my new home for music. Right. 
because you have got a lot of hats. Uh, you're juggling lots of balls all at the same time in that you are super creative. You can't stop yourself. So you work on various different music projects, but you're also a graphic designer and work on art projects too. Does one feed the other? They both seem very separate in the sense of like my goals and motivations. I don't see my career being graphic design. It's just, that's definitely something I'm passionate about and it's more like I would love to do it as much as possible, but music is definitely the focus and design for me has always been a part of the record packaging and presentation. So that seems like it's not going anywhere. Yeah, it's a big part, but music is the focus. Definitely. And we have this new album, Mahal, which I think was recorded over quite a long period of time between 2016 and 2020. Yeah, it was something that just took a long time, more because it was hard to arrange all the sessions and get the concept of like this sound and vibe sort of channeled. Like throughout the span of recording this, I kind of, I was like trying to convince myself that it's okay to make <laughs> more guitar music. And I just needed to sort of get a, a couple of records out of my system before I could really focus on the full vision of this sound or this side of Toro. So What For was great in that it it was the first time people could hear this side of my songwriting and it wasn't just electronic and beats and stuff. So going back into this, I kind of wanted to even just double down on the musicianship and the production in the sense of like just recording in a new space not just my home but like recording in a big room things like that yeah so with the last two albums boo boo and outer peace from 2017 and 2019 they're more electronic you see those as being different and what for leading into this which came out back in 2015 so you know in a way you've been percolating the answer to the question what for since you put it out yeah. And I didn't know that I was going to be doing a second guitar record. It kind of just happened. Like I had all these songs that I wanted to go on what for. And I knew that they were just a little different. There's something about them. There's a little bit more soul, a little bit more funk and blues. And I wanted what for to be more chord oriented and progression oriented and less rhythm, which is what I feel like Mahal is most of the songs in Mahal was started on the drums and bass. So I just tried to see that through, really. Yeah. I mean, it has got a great groove. And it it segues from one to the other really well. I mean, you have these kind of joining pieces between tracks, be they what sounds like either a, a helicopter or a motorcycle. Or, you know, you've got these different sounds that kind of unite very much the first half of the album together. Thanks. Yeah, I feel like, you know, those little spices here and there really help paint the picture. Yeah, no, it's true. So the first song we're going to look at is Deja Vu, which comes later in the album. Can we hear a blast of the master so that we get a sense of what Deja Vu sounds like and then we can mm. find out how you created it? Yeah, let's do it. Lord have mercy, child. What do you need? What do you want right now? Uh. I think I'm free. 
Definitely gives us her taste of deja vu. And there's all those great elements. I mean, I love that guitar that kind of starts uh, soloing immediately. It kind of reminds me of Michael Rother from Noi somehow. It has that kind of period, that kind of mid-70s period. Nice. That would have informed Bowie's you know, low era as well. Yeah. Um, how did you go about starting deja vu? Where did it all begin? It started with the bass, for sure. I had an old friend in... My guitarist from my early band, The Heist, back in South Carolina, he played guitar on this track. And um, his style, Dylan Lee's style, is like very Southern, kind of like, it's just some twang to his style. So I felt like it really fit, you know, just jamming with him. It really fit this record. But we were at my apartment and I kind of just started this bass line. And then he started soloing on top of it. And eventually we got to the studio and... I just laid down like a quick drum loop and then we just jammed together to that. And then my technique for this record is like really informed by the what four sessions. And what I did was like, I would just record to a click and then just chop it up. So after we jammed for a long time, we chopped it up and sort of just structured it. And then what I usually like to do is go through and replay the drums again. So it's sort of all glued together. Would you be able to share any of that original jam? So in effect, sure. is the jam the demo? I mean, yeah, these days it just turns into the final thing. Yeah. I do have some like muted drums here that this is like the original drum loop. It's a little different. Let's see what it sounds like. Pretty much the same. The only place where it's different is just it loops less. This yellow track here is where I just would play it all the way through as opposed to looping the drums. Yeah. So yeah, it kind of just turned into that. His guitar part, I just reversed it and um, it really took a life of its own. Let's see, I got to unreverse it. So the way it sounds reversed kind of just was magical. It just ended up working. So I was like, okay, I have to keep that. And all those kind of whirring sounds, what are they? Are they yeah. created by something else? Or? Yeah, these are these little zap sounds from this, this Moog synth that I um, was messing with. <laughs> they sound great. They sound almost like uh, the zoo next door, kind of <laughs> yeah. feeding time in the, <laughs> the ape house. Yeah. <laughs> it's very uh, wild. Yeah. So, yeah, I just jammed on this noisemaker for a long time and it just cut out what I didn't want to use as like a little texture, mm. atonal texture. I didn't really want it to sit with the song. I wanted it to sound like you're confused and 
drunk, whatever. Like there's like all these bubbles popping around. Yeah. It sounds very playful the way that you approach it. You know, that you get your friend round, you have some fun together making sounds, record it, see what else it inspires. You react to that and then change it and put in some new things, take away some things. Then you've Definitely. you've almost got the song. I mean, in terms of those vocals then, do you bring those in later? Yeah. So vocals for me are usually last. It's um very rare that these days I'm doing the lyrics and the chords at the same time. I just, um, my process has changed over the years. And it's been, it was fine writing lyrics at the same time. I remember those days, but I don't miss it. Honestly, I felt like it was harder. <laughs> and at times, you know, if I'm in the woods or at the river or something with my acoustic guitar, sure, I'll try to just like write a quick song. It was prior to causers, that sort of technique of yeah, just sitting down and doing the songwriter thing. Um, I think over the years, I just saw my passion going more towards being a producer and less of a songwriter. So more of these, most of these songs on Mahal are a little bit on the simpler side, little to no guitar overdubs or vocal overdubs or doubling. Like again, What For had so much layering, so many synths in the background and strings and it was orchestral and I wanted Mahal to be just like raw. You hear all four things going on and like little reverb and delay on everything. So those are sort of the un, the unseen parameters for this record. Yeah, the kind of thing that you've got in your mind, but you don't need to overthink it because you've self-imposed these rules and you're just going to stick to them because that's the vibe you're feeling <laughs> at that time, yeah, really. Yeah. So in terms of your I mean, lyrics with Deja Vu, I mean, are you, are you responding to the music and coming up with these words or oh, then yeah. having fun playing around? Definitely. I think that's why I started waiting to do the lyrics last. It's just because I, I want to see what the music is doing first and then sort of have the vocals coincide with those themes. And specifically for Deja Vu, it did spark something of nostalgia for me. And I did want to sort of reference my Southern heritage my southern roots and like dylan playing some of that twangy stuff really helps but also the bass line to me was like a very like ccr type bass line in like i knew from the get-go that i wanted this record to be a little bit more americana and less like bowie yeah and yet in a way it's interesting because by reversing dylan's guitar you almost kind of change the twang aspect you know you kind of take it away from from its southern roots totally exactly and that's definitely the the picture I, i'd like to paint is like a a fusion of american culture and showing the harmony in doing that yeah well i mean it has such a great laid-back feel to it deja vu so i mean you, you've made it sound very simple <laughs> the way that you put it together you know you and dylan got together he went home, you carried on playing, you responded with some words, and lo and behold, you, you have the track. Yeah, pretty much. It was, again, such a magical experience because like he's, Dylan barely gets a chance to really come out to California much because he tours with Washed Out. And um, yeah, we finally just found some time and he came through. And I think, yeah, this says 2014 up there in the, in the session. Like, I think... 
this baseline was something I had from what for. But I just felt like it was too, again, too Southern, too much bass groove going on for that record. And I really wanted to just save it for Mahal. So yeah, it was just a matter of time before I was able to get him to come through and just like show him some stuff that I still was passionate about and that I want to finish. So it wasn't until like 2017 that he was able to actually do his bass line or his guitar part. So yeah, really some time <laughs> in between. Yeah, yeah. But so it's it's interesting because the two of you go back, you know, obviously you mentioned you go back to the heist and the band that you were in. Was that in high school? High school and college. Yeah. High school and college. But the two of you are kind of intertwined in terms of both of your emergences into the world as musicians and as you know, named artists, you know, as Toro Imoa and as Washed Out. You know, you were kind of bunched together as part of a scene, you know, as part of Chill Wave, regardless of whether this was even something that you had thought of, but you mm-hmm. were kind of shoved together in that way. So it's almost as if your futures and your lives are, are intertwined regardless of whether you had put any thought into that at all. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's funny, like back in the heist, I was playing with my current bassist, Patrick Jeffords, and also the current washed out drummer, Cameron Gardner. So it was the four of us, we split off and became... Toro and then Dylan and Cameron went and played and washed out. And um, yeah, it was kind of a bittersweet thing going on. It was interesting because like the heist never really broke up or anything. We just rode the wave that we caught and it happened to be Toro. I remember uh, specifically like Cameron and Dylan were still in college when Toro was taking off. And I was like, I don't want to take you out of school to go on tour. Like you're almost done. By the time they finished, Washed Out was starting a band and it kind of just lined up that way. So yeah, it was a matter of time before we were able to like link back up and make some music again and and really hear what time and experience has done to our musicianship. And I'm pretty happy. Yeah, well, it sounds great. And it's great that you've still got this friendship and this strong bond together. Yeah, same. It's, It's honestly like, it's impressive too, because like not a lot of bands stay on good terms. So I'm very grateful that my brothers, they've, we've been friends since like middle school, elementary school. So like, it's been a long time and it's cool to see us just grow up together and gain this experience. Yeah. I think it would be great if we could hear a bit of deja vu again, just to round this off and illustrate this great chemistry and bond that you have. (laughs) And maybe you could, if you wanted to, as we do that, maybe build up the parts from, say, the bass line through all the different ingredients that go into the, the final song. I see. Okay. Deja vu in a town like we got the drums and vocals here. Makes me miss and then the bass line really takes it home. That we would do. And then Dylan, of course. little bit of extra glue is just the shaker. A dirty dancing in a tiny town. Red, white, and blue, black and brown. No romance and don't you mess around. A sweet taboo when you made a vow. Mm, yes, sir. 
Excellent. It's beautiful to hear that. So that is Deja Vu, and the next song we're going to look at will be Magazine. The next song we're going to look at from the new album by Toro Imwa is Magazine. The new album is Mahal. And uh, Mahal, what's behind the title of the album, Chaz? So Mahal is a Filipino or Tagalog word for love and expensive, actually. So to me, I've just sort of equated that to mean highly valued or cherished. So I felt like that was a fitting title. Well, for one, long story short, you're supposed to name your jeepney. So I wanted to name it something Filipino and something very much in the same vein as like the Kin Kesey further bus or something. Like right. I wanted it to have like a psychedelic flower power reference. So that being the name, I, I definitely just felt like it was the perfect name for the record. And why did you want it to link up to, you know, something like Kinkizi and you know a psychedelic flower bus? Being based in the Bay Area, and given that this record is very much a psychedelic record, I felt like it was appropriate, and I wanted to just spread positivity. I grew up saying Mahalkita, which is "I love you." My mom would always say that. Unfortunately, I can't really speak Tagalog that at all, so. Yeah, I felt like there's no better positive message than love. So yeah, yeah, totally. So um, if people buy those shirts and it says Mahal, then you're spreading love throughout the world. You know, just through the shirts alone. Um, you know, I'm just I, I've had a look exactly. online and there's some as a beautiful red hooded sweatshirt with Mahal written in big letters on the back, which looks really cool. It's where your um, two things combine. You know, your talents, you know, graphic design and your your music comes together nicely in all the different artwork that's associated with your output, be it on the record sleeve or, or on the website. You know, you've got this nicely newly designed website for the record as well. <laughs> well, the, the website is a design joke. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but it's a good one. It's, it's a fun website, Yeah, but it's definitely poking fun at early internet. So yeah. Check it out. Yeah, no, it's definitely worth having a play. Well, like it's it's funny because it's really easy to navigate, <laughs> yeah. like early internet stuff, and I found that a nice user experience <laughs> when I was having a look at it. Plus, you can't forget about the weather section on the page. Very useful. No, <laughs> it's always good to know what the weather's like in the Bay Area, wherever you may be in the yeah. world. <laughs> so, magazine. Tell us about magazine. How did this one? come about maybe we should hear a, a bit of the master just so that people get a sense of sure. of what it's all about because you've got a collaborator another collaborator on this too yeah salami rose joe lewis is on this record and um yeah i really felt like it was another track that i was still passionate about and i knew that i wanted to leave space for other collaborators this track particularly was a another fresh jam. It wasn't like something that was laying around. I think this was at the other studio, the warehouse space, and Salami Rose, also known as Lindsay, she's Bay Area based, and her, her music career is also taking off, and it was hard to align for a few years after meeting her to try to get some jams in, but we finally did this one week. We had like three days booked, and we this was one of the tracks that we ended up making and yeah, it was fun to just, again, I hopped on drums 
actually, and just had her jam on keys. And then I went back and added the bass line. But I wanted to really just sort of capture a jam in the sense that, I mean, it is looped in some parts, but like just capturing the performance and sort of uh, finding the the juicy parts. Yeah. It's kind of rare for me as a producer in a solo act even to just capture that kind of um, chemistry and magic. So I really resonated with this track. So let's just take a listen. Salami Joe or Lindsay, Salami Rose, sorry, uh, or Lindsay just responding to whatever you were playing in the room. Yeah, she has like a jazz background, so I kind of gravitated to the brushes for this this jam. And it's interesting too, because like we can see in the session here that there's all sorts of stuff that was unused. And I, I said this to someone before, you kind of have to cross the line to know where the line is. And then that's when you hit that's when you know to start editing down and trying to make space. So one of the things that I did immediately was like the baseline that I did in the original session was just didn't fit. It was a little too, too gnarly. It sounds like this. Yeah, I even got some spring reverb going through the amp. And um, to me, this felt like more of a 60s type thing. And I really wanted to take it to the 70s. <laughs> and so I, I wasn't happy with the pick. I wasn't happy with the reverb. Ended up redoing the bass line, playing with my fingers on the Hofner. But... um. The new bass line has a roundness to it that just felt like where I wanted to go with it. Yeah, so we were just listening to the old bass line. And here's the new one. Right. And just, it's a little bit more subby, a little bit more subtle even. Mm. And, uh, Here's actually the old drums, again, going back to those loops that I was talking about. Generally, when I'm just jamming in demo mode or something, I just do a two-track stereo bounce of the drums and go back and re-record them. So I like these, but I wasn't happy that I didn't have, I didn't keep some of that jazzy sizzle that the original mm. jam sort of had. So I went back and added a second drum part that has more of the um, just that I guess softness to it 
there's extra yeah. guitar there and some other backing vocals. Is that it? Yeah. Let's see what we have here. We have like maybe a guitar solo. I remember this this wog distorted a guitar was just a little much for the ending. And again, going back to the parameters I gave myself of like no overdubs, I really felt like I just wanted to just take this out and just have this one distorted guitar sort of do its thing. Uh, this one. Mm. Just like less wah going on, there's less, there's more space. Just really doing whole notes, half notes. I feel like that with the wah solo was enough. Here's another fun thing, actually, that I muted. This didn't make it on the final, but I think, again, I was trying to channel some sort of, like, I love xylophones in music, in rock or pop or whatever, and especially in the 60s and 70s, and I tried to do a little bit of, a, like, a Mellotron thing going on, but it just felt a little too much, too close to Stereo Lab or something. It was too 60s. And I felt like I just, it's not for this track. It made it too pretty, so I ended up taking it out. Yeah. So very much a, an exercise in exploring ideas, but not being afraid to take them away when they're not adding <sighs> yeah. the quality that you want. Definitely, yeah. I had to keep reminding myself, like, actually, no, this is getting orchestrated and I'm, I really have to just like rein it back and not go too crazy with letting my mind go off in these melodies and textures. But yeah, it felt like it was just wasn't the right time or record for this sound. Yeah. I'm intrigued to know how you create the softness in your music and particularly on this album. So when we hear those drums and we hear the wah solo and, and elements like that. But you take away the attack that can come with those elements, you know, because it, it sounds like mm. a, a simple miking of the drums, you know, which could be quite brittle and quite harsh. And similarly, you know, we often associate the use of, of wah-wah with blue cheer mm. or, or the stooges or something, which is, you know, so much more attacking. And yet you use those elements so that they're familiar and yet somehow... They sound soft and mellow. <laughs> How do you do Thanks. that? I mean, is that yeah. a particular recording technique that you're employing there? Uh, let's see. I mean, for the most part, there is possibly some EQing going on. I think a big factor, though, was I recorded everything with ribbon mics. So that helps. Mm. And that's about it, really. You know, I have to preface this all by saying like a... These aren't the final mixes. Like I eventually send these off to Pat Jones for the mixing process. And I give him some notes on like what to keep, what not to change. And usually he just comes through with like the more technical science ear and less of the producer's ear. And um, we really just try to just collaborate that way. There are times where he does something and I'm like, actually, that does sound better. 
but you can hear it even in, in this session on, that I have, like it's, there is a softness to it. I think the space helps really. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want this song particularly to be like too hard hitting, say like uh, the opening track on the hall, like the medium. Yeah. Which is just in your face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause that's pretty fuzzy and yeah, it is in your face. Yes. But it's interesting with the, the drums. So, so that do you, how long are the loops that you're creating there? Did you play through the whole track yeah. or did you, is it 30 yeah. seconds, 60 seconds? What, what are you doing? Usually the way I, I would do things is like from the intro to the, about the first chorus. And then I'll see if it's good repeating. This track, I repeated it. There's a break right here after the, uh, the first chorus. And then it just loops again. For me, I, I feel like the repetition is the pop factor. Pop to me is about repetition. It's about that familiarity. So if I were to take it to a completely different, you know, like say a C section, or it sounds strange, but a, a C part, I felt like I would, it would just not be a pop song. It would just keep going into a jazzier world. But to repeat it, for me, takes it to that pop element. Yeah. Also, my loops aren't four bars. They're like 32 bars. So right. I kind of feel like that's a nice subtle way to sort of hide some of your amateurness <laughs> or my amateurness-ish. So. Yeah. But it makes it seem very human. You know, that's the great thing. It doesn't seem like a loop. Yeah. It sounds like it's somebody playing along. Definitely. And I wanted to be sure to not erase the human qualities of the parts, especially the drums. Yeah. No, it's almost a signature sound in a way, these skittery drums that you've got. You no, know, because they have a jazz element to them as well. You no, know, but maybe with the structure that you're enforcing, it kind of gives it a, a pop sense. Yeah. I felt like this record, I really tried to let my true skill set show. And it's not that I'm the most proficient musician or drummer or anything, but there is something fun about having some amateur elements involved. So I feel like that just makes it more, more relatable and a little bit more digestible when it's not too, too technical, especially given the type of project Toro is very much a pop thing. So there are songs though where I'm a little bit more, I guess, diligent about not making it too rough or something. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what was going on and, and what for. I really felt like that record really allowed for a lot of, um, what's the word? Just things going on. I don't know how to describe it, <laughs> but I wanted that one to be, that record to be way more elaborate. So, Do you think that's a stage that, musicians or any kind of artist go through you know that it's like well how how far can i take this how far can i take my my skill level as it were you know how professional how polished can i create something mm -hmm. and then when you do it in your own way and to your own standard then you kind of almost recoil from that and think right okay well i <laughs> i tried that and it was fun and but you know there's no need to go through that again totally i think um for me it made sense to sort of make what for first being that that was sort of my, my real first jump into like the rock realm, 
my second record, Anything Return, that wasn't electronic, but to me, that record was written mostly on keys. So it's a different genre almost. Like you can have rock and roads and they can exist, but it almost has more of an R&B thing mm. for me. Just given, I know the skills and the type of things that I play on the keys are going to always going to just lean more towards major seven and minor seven type chords. On guitar though, I can get really simple. I'm actually less jazzy on guitar. So I figured I might as well just lean into what I know on the guitar, given like my rock background. So Yeah. I mean, do you have a first instrument? You no, know, what was the first instrument? It was keys. Yeah. yeah. I started piano at like seven and guitar at 12. But like, for me, I had to sort of show that I, I know the rules with what for before I could break them with Mahal. Right. I felt like if I came out straight with like loose drum parts and stuff, I, it would mess up my, my whole approach to this project. To me, it's a little bit more interesting to show that, yeah, you know all the rules and then you're down to break them as opposed to just showing that your recordings are getting cleaner and better and your skills are getting more technical Yeah, for me. And talking of exploring, now what else should we explore in, in magazine? I mean, what kind of instructions did you give Lindsay? Sure. So let's talk about Lindsay. She's got some vocal parts here from like, these are like the OG vocals, I believe, before she came, she sent in final vocals, but I think she just started with some scratch. So were those vocals recorded on that day that you were jamming together then? Yeah, yeah. sort of turned into uh after the lyrics were done same cadence but um more of a, a picture now So is she singing words that you wrote for her? Oh, no. no. Yeah, she wrote these. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing songwriter. I think that that's the fun part about collaborating on songs is like trying to puzzle these pieces together. So she sent me just the hook or it, her part just became the hook. And I was like, okay, how do I fit my verses to fit sort of the themes she's talking about? So the themes for this record, I really wanted to sort of stick with Lyrically, I wanted them to sort of be focused on, again, like a, a broader picture. I didn't want to really talk too much about like heartbreak or something, I don't know, similar. But the challenge in this song was that her chorus was a lot more introspective than what I was hoping to write about. And um, it sort of just turned into this like poetic thing about consumerism and culture, just sort of moving to a digital 
realm, but um, I can play that back with my vocals just so we can hear how it yeah. sits. Yeah, that would be great. Drama, please, no more drama, mean. I'm gonna throw it up all over all the seats. This man in the magazine, it's just us we want to see. And for me, I felt like um, the cadence that I sort of use for a lot of this record is a little closer to my actual talking voice. It's less of a shaped diaphragm sound and I guess I just wanted to bring a realness to it again like what for was such a there's so much like channeling the Beatles and Big Star and Todd Rundgren I really wanted to sort of bring almost more like a a lower like rap or hip-hop cadence to some of these like psych songs that still fit it's not like I'm rapping or anything but the delivery is definitely like a, it's whatever, you know, it's kind of blasé. Yeah, yeah. And do you put an effect on your voice or anything to... Yeah, I have the uh, stock, not stock, but I have the built-in sort of flanger that Reason has. No more drama, please, no more drama. I can play the vocal chain for you. I'm gonna throw it up all over so we have some basic compression, de-esser. in the magazine. No flange. It's just us we want to see. No saturation. It's man in the magazine. So like I could have redone any of these, but I really liked how the vocals sounded so all over the place. Kind of like, ah. you just can't tell like the emotion. Yeah. Sort of like shock. Interesting. And um, you use reason. Is there is there a reason why you use Reason? This is the the program that you've worked with for forever. Yeah, I like you said, I've used it the entire time. I've been doing Toro, and um, right when I moved to a Mac from a PC, Ableton had just started out, and everyone was like, "Oh, you gotta get Ableton. That's like the best for a Mac." And I, I was coming from Fruity Loops, and I coming from a hardware background knowing how to record in physical studios or whatever, like I just resonated with the layout and the interface of Reason being that like, it's very heavy on the back end in the sense that you can hit tab and patch anything the way you want. Like you could make some really interesting sounds and that was comforting. Like I was like, okay, I can understand wires. That's easy. Yeah. It gets confusing when you can't see the wires. So that's where I am just like, actually, I've messed with Ableton like once. I just felt like it was more of an instrument than a DAW. But um, I really just love the chunkiness of Reason. And it has honestly this SSL board is like very intuitive and useful when you're actually bringing this knowledge into a, a studio with a board. So uh, yeah, old school minded. Yeah. So it feels much more hands-on and more real to you. Yeah, it's definitely just what I'm familiar with. And I think that's all that matters. Like there's no right or wrong DAW to use and there's no right or wrong process. As long as, you know, you're getting the sound you want, I feel like you're on track. Yeah. 
And it helps when it's something that you know and understand, that it means you can do something then and there and not have to scratch your head and pull your hair out and think, oh no, <laughs> how do I do that again? You understand this? It works. What's not to like? No. Yeah. And the results speak for themselves. You know? So if we have another blast of, of magazine, we can wrap that section up and, and look forward to our next song in just a moment. Cool. Yeah, let's, let's do it. That is magazine featuring Salami Rose Joe Lewis by Toro y Moi. And we're going to look at a third song from the Mahal album in just a moment. We've got The Loop up next. The next song we're going to look at from the new album by Toro y Moi, Mahal, is The Loop. But before we get into it, so Chaz, when you were telling me that, um, you know, you began on, on piano really quite young, and was this an impetus that came from the family or, or were you drawn into music? A little bit of both, but definitely more just my mom and dad wanting me to do something extracurricular. We've always been a musical family and like my grandparents always had a piano and everyone in the family played music. And so it's a little bit of, yeah, that kind of family pressure mixed with my actual passion to, I guess, just be creative. Cause like I was really bad at practicing and I was really bad at like taking the time to read. I mean, I can, but I'm so out of practice. Like I can't just sit down like the, you know, like an orchestra and just sight read something. Like it's not, I was like, hell no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I just want to play. Yeah. <laughs> and just, yeah. And just like, so for my first piano recital, I actually, uh, I was set to play The Entertainer by Scott Joplin. And I ended up just memorizing it. Cause I was like, actually like, I know how this song goes. Why am I reading it? And like, it just felt like torture. I'm definitely kicking myself now for like not being patient enough to like read music, but learning to play by ear is just as helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I get the impression that you want to be hands-on. You want to get involved and, and get going on it. And is that the, the same with the way that you got involved in recording? You know, this curiosity that... Oh, well, I don't want to wait until somebody comes around. I'm, I'm going to no, <laughs> start doing these different parts myself. <laughs> In a sense, yeah. I can remember recording my own stuff kind of more out of boredom. My parents had a two-cassette deck karaoke machine. You probably remember these, but you put the karaoke <laughs> tape in one side and then you put a blank tape so you can record yourself singing. Right. So we would do that all the time. That was like a family activity. Uh. I don't know how this came to be, but honestly, like I figured out, oh, I could like record the drums. I had like a keyboard with like all the sounds or whatever. So I recorded the drums on one side, flipped it over, and I would just start dubbing the tapes on each side, adding an instrument every time. And that sort of just sparked something. And then I, I graduated to a an actual Fostex four track when I was 15. And that definitely 
sparked some ideas, figured out how bouncing works, panning, levels, clipping, did not give a fuck. I was still clipping so hard until like college. <laughs> and then I moved to like a digital nine track around 18, a boss digital nine track. And that, came, that became my, my workhorse for the next like four or five years until I got a laptop. I didn't know a thing about sound cards or about recording, getting a digital signal uh, until college. So, um, yeah, it was really around, honestly, like a year or two before my first record came out was when I figured out what a real signal was. Cause like learning on the boss nine track, everything kind of just sounds distorted. And then same for a cassette tape. Yeah. You just never knew, like the only indication you had of, uh, clipping was like a little LED light that would turn on <laughs> and that's it. And to me, it just sounded cool. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't until, yeah, I was actually hearing what it, a real signal sounds like through a computer, through a sound card and headphones. I was like, oh man, these are so distorted. And also I think just hearing what MIDI, what a MIDI signal can sound like, it's like, oh wow, that's so clean. That's how it's actually supposed to sound. Whatever frequencies are supposed to sound like. So it was a slow learning process. I was recording at studios with my bands and stuff, but like I wasn't really paying attention to what the engineer was doing or anything like that. My ear was just focused on the production and being like, okay, we had to add two guitars here or something. And even when I was recording the heist, like I was really striving to get a good sound. I just didn't have the knowledge. Like I had one friend who was going to school for recording and like I would learn a little bit here and there from him, but I was mostly just in, I was in this mode of immediacy. So I just wanted to just get the signal ASAP. And it was very much just, I guess, punk, if anything. Like even the style of music we were playing was like a post-punk thing. So aesthetically it fit to have all of these like rough recordings. Yeah. But I knew in my head, I really wanted to get like a decent sound that would like have some punch and it would have like a full spectrum. So it just took, yeah, a long time. Embarrassingly long time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that sense of immediacy, though, is important, isn't it? Because that, that's what drives you forward. Yeah. Um, but it, I just get the impression that, you know, Toro is your project. You know, it's your baby. And there's a certain element of you that wants to control it all. But coupled with that is the idea of being in control, but also of moving forward. That it's like, okay, right. You no, know, this time I'm trying this. Right tried that next one no that you're kind of constantly mm -hmm. moving forward in in your own way for sure i think sure i'd like to be the ones calling the shots but collaboration has always been in the picture like whether it's you know the performance the producing the mixing i always felt like having someone else touch the music somewhere is always welcomed just coming from that band background i I started Toro as like a production exercise. Like I was in all of these, like oh, I was in two indie rock bands and like they were more guitar and live drums. Everything was live. And really Toro, like I said, starting with the, the karaoke machine, like I wanted to just figure out electronic music. I wanted to figure out how to make beats. I wanted to figure out how to sample. And that's what led to all of this was just wanting to understand sound Eventually it turned into the engineering sort of side of things. 
one, by my own motivation, but two, I think the technology has just gotten to the point where we can actually make full songs by ourselves and get good sound by ourselves way easier. We have all the tools in our laptops now to make something of quality audio. So mm. really just, it's just a production sort of project where I could just explore genres and explore different techniques, recording techniques. Yeah. It's interesting because the kind of the indie rock or the post-punk rocker in you still still emerges. And that's one of the interesting things about the whole Toro y Moi sound. It's constantly changing and you're keeping us, the listener, guessing all the time because we don't necessarily know which bit you're going to bring in at any particular moment. For sure. I have no clue myself on like where it's going <laughs> next. Like I, I just know there's a lot of music genres out there, so there's tons to explore. Yeah, that's great. I love the idea that, you know, and they're all yours. They can be yours if you want them. <laughs> totally. And the next exploration we're going to listen to is The Loop, another selection yeah. from Mahal. And it's a different one again, isn't it, really? There's a, a real kind of soul element to this, both in the way that you sing and also the, the guitar solo in there kind of reminds me of the Isley Brothers. Mm -hmm. But maybe we should hear, hear how it ended up first so that we've got a sense of what's going on. Yeah. do have particular heroes that you're inspired by? A lot of the decisions were made knowing that I'm trying to channel a certain era of music. So there isn't really a particular person. I mean, other than maybe McCartney. Like, I feel like that's who I resonate with the most, mm. if anything. Yeah, I just feel like um, his understanding of music and genres even really sort of informed my taste and approach to like finding some common denominators within all of these genres. And um, there is something to the guitar playing. I mean, I'm, I'm really big on Tim Maia. Tim Maia is an amazing musician who sort of has this cult following, but everything he touches is guaranteed gold. Like he even influenced me on what for? And he's someone I always go back to, being that he really pushed music both from the outside and from the inside, I guess. What I mean by that is like, he's a black musician. And I think as black musicians, we have to sort of try to navigate in ways that sort of allow us to still remain like not boxed in. So he was really pushing rock, but at the same time pushing black soul music and like Brazilian. So there's like this international aspect involved 
with rock and roll, which is like, you know, American genre. So to have all of these elements, I feel like I just really resonated with his style and sound and it nourished me for a long time and still does. Mm -hmm. So he's probably one of the biggest or bigger influences on me. Yeah. And is he contemporary or is he? Yeah, he's from the 70s, actually. Yeah. And there's some really interesting stories out there about him. The first time I heard about him actually was from a short animated clip online. It's on YouTube, actually narrated by Devinger Banhart. And it just talks about how the insane stories that people have told about Tim Maia. Like, I know the big one that stands out is like how he, he wouldn't let the label listen to his music until they took acid with him and stuff like that. And like he forced them to take acid in the office to listen to the record and shit. So like, it's pretty, pretty hard shit. It's cool. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, So what happened with the loop? Where did this start? So this is another track from the 2015 sort of era where like it totally could have gone on what for, but Again, it was a little too funky. What For wasn't about the funk. And uh, honestly, I was just kicking myself for so long because like, I recorded the drums with two mics and I was just, for years, just telling myself, man, I really got to re-record these because these are just too thin. And um, I recorded it with everyone in the room at the same time. Doug Stewart on keys, I was on bass. And actually, Sean... Lewecki on drums, who also played and wrote Omaha with me. So we ended up taking Sean's drums off just because I wasn't happy with the the signal. And um, actually had Matt Shorey redo the parts. So we have like a second drum part here. And then my rule of thumb is if you redo the drums, you got to redo the bass. So ended up redoing the bass again, kept most of the keys you can still even hear some of the old drums bleeding through the keys because everything was going through amps and uh, mics. So so it's a kind of mutation. So you've got 2015 bits and then 2020 bits, is it? Or more recent than that? Yeah, actually. Yeah. 2021 bits. and Right. So yeah, actually, let's just start with this, these old drums and I'll show you what, yeah. what I was hating on. <laughs> okay, so yeah. Just this overhead and a kick. And I was just like, damn it. Actually, I can make these work. And we tried. We did. Um, after like two mixes, I was just like, actually, this isn't ready. And I'll go ahead and throw in the bass. Here's the old bass line. So that's me on the bass. And then Doug comes in on the keys. And Doug comes in with these chords. skeleton of the whole song. It was just the three of us jamming in the room. Yeah, so it was sitting like this for a long time. 
And I think even we have some old vocals here. You can see what they are. <laughs> even lazier. Oh man, Monday snuck up so fast. No one keeps me in the loop when I get back. Guess it's up to me to stay in the loop. Staying in the loop. So the idea was there. Let's actually just keep the roads because that's the only thing I kept from the original session. So we'll keep these roads going. And I'll add this Shory drums. It's like, ah, yes, that's what I want. And, and you mentioned that the original drums were recorded on just two mics. So how did you record these ones? This is more the Glenn Johns technique, just kick, snare, two overheads. So it was pretty much him, Matt, playing along to Doug's keys. And then I came through and added the new bass line. Playing through a little flange pedal. The, the main difference seems to be space. You know, the space in, in the drum beat and the space in the bass line, there's just more yeah. space. <laughs> totally. Less notes. Definitely. And I think it's important to always sort of pay attention to that. Just it's really easy for things to get cluttered fast. And um, yeah, there's just a lot of bleed, honestly. And that the old drum take is just too much bleed and more reverb than I really wanted. Room reverb, that is. So just had to suck it up and go do it again. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds great. I was so happy after I re-recorded everything. It gave me ideas for the guitar. I don't know, it reminds me of like The Godfather or something. It's got this like mob boss guitar arpeggio. And so the guitar and Rhodes have like a really awesome thing going on. Like Doug's chords are doing this really great jazzy thing, but I felt like I was throwing in more of like a Isley Brothers sound you're talking about. Yeah. And I was really, I was really into trying to, yeah, just use the wah pedal for dynamics and. drums back in. Bass. So if we go into the vocals, so another big thing I went through and did was just like, redid all the vocals. This is like way later in the process, like 2021, I got a new vocal chain going, got a new vocal mic, and just, I wanted to sort of, if anything, have the vocals be clean and crisp for this record, 
to make up for the fact that everything is so loose. That's I just wanted there to be some professionalism somewhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. What was the new mic and what was the new chain? Uh, it was the uh, I forgot the exact model number, but it was it was a Neumann, like a smaller seven hundred dollar Neumann. I just figured, you know, the jump to like a nicer condenser mic would do the trick. And um, yeah, I felt really happy just because all of my vocals prior to this record were done on like a SM7 or even like a 57, but mostly on the SM7. And yeah, I just wanted there to be like a, a clarity to these being that like my voice is lower and there's less of a less singing and more like softer talking type melodies yeah it's interesting because you went through the the vocal chain for deja vu a bit didn't you so um i'm just trying to think how you know five years later you tweaked it and how you changed it to go with this new microphone um i also picked up an api just channel strip that i i go through now i figured Give it a shot. I am more of a fan of hardware. As you saw in the setup of this podcast, yeah. I'm not a VST person. So <laughs> getting the the VSTs um, installed was a bit, it's a bit confusing for me at times, but it's, it's actually starting to make sense after this <laughs> session. <laughs> yeah, it's just gotten way easier. But yeah, I, I felt like a channel strip is definitely uh, a must have these days. And um, yeah. Just sort of following some rules here and there. Not too much rule breaking, but I definitely wanted the vocals to be professional. Mm. So, Can we hear them again? Yeah. St. Louis to New Orleans, someone take me off my feet. Road horse back down the Mississippi. Someone gotta keep me in the loop, please. and the guitar solo yeah it's great because the um the sound of it you know the way that you've recorded it the equipment you're using does match the whole feel of that guitar solo somehow it creates that whole mood and yet it's nice hearing these differences you know that, that you are using different microphones and you know it creates different moods and different textures and a different feel you know it keeps the listener interested and involved and yet you know it means that when we get to the loop somehow that kind of cuts through, that vocal cuts through and mm. creates that greater contrast. Yeah. It's something that I really didn't take serious at first until it came to like working on a, a second record or a third record with the same setup. And you're just, as the artist or producer, you're just like, I've heard this sound before. Like I need something new. Like, And something as simple as a microphone or a, a channel strip will usually give you a different result. So I was happy, but it took a lot of convincing for me to actually start jumping into this <laughs> gear world seriously. Yeah. 
I remember that one fact about the Beatles that they would never have the same snare drum on a song. It's just like baffling. And I, I was like, actually, I, I should think about it that way. I should, I don't want to say should, but I think there is an advantage to switching it up that often. It just leads to like more exciting results. Mm. And have you always been your own producer? Or have you tried working with, with other people, you know, as a kind of a overlord or whatever the right phrase sure. is? Yeah, I'm always down to collaborate. And I think for Toro, I'm always um, sort of going to take the producer chair and the collaboration comes in with the performance or the musicianship, vocals. So I guess I do sort of see my role as like more executive producer because like I have worked with other producers slash musicians who contribute something that is more of a production thing than a, than like a chord progression. So yeah, I, I feel like usually my ear gravitates towards textures and that's usually what I like to have the most control over is like the warmth or the brightness and um, that's about it. Other than that, I'm down to, to have other people mix it. I'm down to have other people play, but it's more just the coloring of everything. I feel like that's where I really see myself being vital. Yeah. I mean, it always fascinates me how artists create their vision, how they realize their own identity. Across mm. all the, the Toro albums, there's a, an audio identity that is there. It's, it's distinct and it's recognizable. But it keeps changing and it's evolving. And um, so each time is, is fresh and different, but it's still you and what you do. And that's always that mm. kind of magical ingredient about artists who, you know, no matter what they do, ultimately always kind of ends up being them somehow, even though they're aspiring totally. to, to be this or that. But our own artistic identity ends up stamping ourselves on it somehow. Yeah. And I always try to remind myself that too, that like to not overthink it and just trust that it's going to eventually have my voice in it. <laughs> no pun intended, but actually like, I don't know what project songs are going to until I actually put vocals on them. So like for me, it like a lot of the stuff on Mahal didn't sound like Toro until I started putting scratch vocals down. And then I was like, Oh, okay. I know how to work with this drum fill. I know how to work with this guitar solo and like where my vocals should sit or how they should sit. It's a weaving of sorts. Like you, I personally don't like to just go in and like, this is my song, boom. Like I'll take parts out if they don't work and just weave it in. So just having that awareness, I feel like is important. Yeah. And I guess it's interesting with, for you, because you have other projects, you have other outlets. You know, you could turn this into something different again. You no, know, it could be, well, it could be a new thing or it could be. Yeah. You know. I thought about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, this is not Toro. <laughs> this is a band. But I think I, I really just started recognizing my role too. Like we said earlier, it's just paying attention to um, what you can control, things like that. Mm. And yet you are a band, you know, you, you perform as a band. Yeah. You know, you, you've had a, you know, a long-term band membership, you know, who, who join you again and again to perform. Totally, yeah. And my band's amazing. Like they've stuck by me the entire time, like, I can't stress the importance of how important it is to have bands in general, not just for Torah or something, but like, I think people enjoy seeing 
the musicianship and they enjoy seeing the chemistry on stage. Mm. And I'm always torn as an electronic musician, like how much acoustic noise is coming from the stage. So like a, I don't know, that was just a big factor, just seeing how technology and live sound has changed so much. Just trying to make everything work, especially with a project like this, that's half live, half electronic. Like we use both, like we use CDJs on stage and live drums, but we are ampless now. Like I, so that's where my producer ear comes in. I'm like, actually no more amps or like no more cymbals. Like I was really inspired by seeing King Crimson back in 2015, which actually sparked a lot of these ideas. There's this one track on what for called half dome. And, um, I say Friday night we go watch music and then the next day we go to Yosemite. Mm. That band that I saw on Friday night was King Crimson. And then the next day I went to hike Half Dome, which was pretty sick. But yeah, all of these influences are just now starting to see the, the light. And I feel really excited to sort of bring this knowledge to uh, the stage. And yeah, seeing King Crimson play without amps was like, actually genius i was like saying to myself like it sounds so good like to see like an older generation sort of being pretty progressive about their live sound was like very awesome so i'm just excited to see where else a band once again where that can go like we can still have bands and still have it sound as pristine as electronic music or as big and heavy yeah it just depends on the, the type of room you're playing i guess yeah well, I mean, it's interesting that having no amps can seem and be so radical. Even the very mention of it, you know, it seems like, whoa, hang on yeah. a minute. <laughs> because also the recordings have that feel. <laughs> they have the feel of, of an amplifier. They have a, that kind of the fuzziness, that you know, intangible noise or sound that comes with turning on a piece of you know, amplified equipment. Well, yeah, I mean, there are amps on the record. Mm. Like everything, all the guitars are coming through amps <laughs> on the record. But live... I've nixed the amp and um, stepping into the, the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's so exciting, chat. So people are in for a treat, you know, various different touring escapades that you've got lined up over the next few months to bring Mahal to the world. Um, Chaz, we always ask people a couple of questions um, to round things off, mm -hmm. um, which I will get into in just a moment after we hear uh, a quick reprise of the loop, maybe, to round off okay. our conversation about that song. Yeah, let's finish it with the guitar solo, I guess. to hear that and it's interesting hearing the solo I'm, I'm imagining you now at, on these live shows front of stage 
uh, maybe arching your back as, <laughs> as you solo away. But maybe it won't be like that. But yeah, it conjures up images in my mind, which is exciting. I like that image. <laughs> so we always ask people um, what their favorite piece of equipment, a favorite piece of kit, favorite technical piece, whatever it is that you can't live without, that you have to use or that you know, inspires you. Um, you know, I could go a bit standard or I could go on the wild side. It's a bit boring, but I have a piano downstairs. You can't see it here, but, um, that's probably my, my pride and joy. I painted it white with house paint the day I got it. Right. (laughs) It's just like a nice Wurlitzer student upright piano. And my grandparents had a Wurlitzer growing up. So I just knew that I liked that sound and. Wurlitzer's got like a nice, nice sound, warm, not bright kind of thing going on. So I was always attracted to the upright versus the baby grand or grand, particularly this kind of upright where it's more of a console. It's got that clanky sort of pub piano vibe Mm. and it's less formal. It's not a pretty sound, but like it's nostalgic at the same time and I actually don't keep up with the tuning and kind of like it that way. So that's definitely probably one of my like, my favorite things is like, it's always there. No chorus, no amps. So it's super immediate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why not? You no, know, you can't go wrong with that. And it's interesting, you know, there are still choices involved in that. You know, there are aesthetic choices and other kinds of values that go into that choice. You no, know, that the upright feels right for you, know that it feels like it's your kind of instrument. Yeah, I really, again, coming from the school of McCartney, kind of feel like that sound is just really like, it's sort of just ingrained in my head as like a nostalgic sound. So it's funny, like I could, like if I grew up listening to like Elton John more or something, I that probably would have persuaded my taste to go towards a grand piano or something, but yeah, something about the upright being pretty approachable. It's not an intimidating sound. It's like a smaller piano too. Mm. feels cool to sort of just lug it around, push it around to this room, that room. Yeah. And would that go on tour with you? Would you leave it at home always and recreate with some kind of electronic equivalent? Probably just stay at home, most likely. Two things, like I, it's heavy as hell. But then also, I'm just becoming like, I don't know if this is a faux pas, (laughs) but with live sound, I'm just not a big, I'm not a big advocate of like more microphones on stage because it just gets boomier and boomier. So I'm just like, if there was a piano, I would just do like contact mics, closed lid, like even behind like a drum shield or something. Like, I'm just like so not into live bleeding sounds, but I guess that's live music for you. Yeah. The other question we always ask everybody is whether they have any advice for people, either advice that has been passed on to them by um, people they've met along the way or, or just lessons you've learned through yeah. your years of, of working. Well, I just want to just stress the importance of um, a music community And how it's so easy these days to just sort of be a solo musician or a solo act. But like really for us to really sort of 
create any sort of buzz in our cities or towns. Like it's only going to happen if we do things together. So whether it's collaborating in the studio or playing shows together, I think that's the biggest thing that I can take away from all of this. Even looking at all of this chill wave stuff, like sure, we're all solo acts, but we were all sort of moving together. And um, it's just like really cool to see how how important still community still is. So, and on top of that, no matter how far you make it in music, like it's, it's important to hold on to that community and grow with them and bring everyone with you. And if you can, yeah, keep playing music with or without people, but also just try to have a community. I think that's a great idea, a great thought to leave us with. Chaz, thanks so much for taking the time out to talk to Take Notes. Really appreciate it. It's been great exploring your music with you. And we should choose another song from Mahal just as a, a kind of outro track, you know, something to play okay. us out. What what should we go for? Um, let's see what I have. I have Clarity. Which features another so just play this. guest. Yeah, it has Sophie Royer. Brilliant. Chaz, thanks so much again. And so we're going to listen to Clarity now, our final selection from Mahal by Toro I Moi. Thanks, John, and thanks, Tape Notes, for having me. See you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.